Welcome to Private Market Talks. I'm your host, Peter Antushin. Today, I'm joined by Mike Ewald from Bain Capital Credit. Mike is a partner and global head of the private credit group at Bain. He is also portfolio manager for middle market credit and senior direct lending strategies. He is a credit committee member as well as CEO of Bain Capital Specialty Finance, a registered BDC. Bain Capital Credit is a leading global specialist and has over $40 billion in assets. They invest across the credit spectrum and credit-related strategies, including leveraged loans, high-yield bonds, structured products, distressed securities, and other products. Today, Mike talks to us about trends in the private credit and private equity markets, the denominator effect, and more. Please download, listen, and if you enjoy it, tag and like it. Now, without further delay, my conversation with Mike Ewald from Bain Capital Credit. Mike, welcome to Private Market Talks. I appreciate you being here with us today. No, happy to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on the show. Yeah, thanks. So, let's dive right into it. I'd like to start with some news that was in the paper sure. today. It was in the Financial Times that there was a deal reported. I don't think it's closed yet, but I think it's been reported that Carlisle is acquiring 50% of uh, COVID. Covidi, I think I'm saying that right, uh, which is a healthcare analytics firm. And the acquisition is being financed by uh, private credit lenders with a, a funding of about $5.5 billion. Right. That is newsworthy. Huge. It's, it's big. It's huge. Um, what do you think that means for the industry? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there, there have been a, maybe a handful of, of multi-billion dollar unit tranches, I think. I mean, even going back to, I guess, Click Technologies, I think was the first billion dollar one. And everyone thought, geez, you know, they, they can't get any bigger, and they do keep getting bigger. What's interesting, though, is, is while they're not syndicated, they are still clubbed, right? So you've got probably a, a two or three really large lenders in there, but then they're trying to fill out the rest of that uh, tranche, too. So we even got a call on that as well. You know, our typical investment size, as you know, is companies with the EBITDA of 25 to $75 million. Right. So, you know, the facility size is 250, 100, maybe 300 million. Right. Uh, and we can certainly hold that ourselves, but we don't really have much business in the multi-billion dollar unit tranche space. It's certainly been very much on purpose as well. But look, I, I think until the syndicated market comes back alive, I think you will see more and more of these sorts of deals. However, I do think the syndicated market's going to come alive again at some point. So in the in the interim, it, it, there's there's huge opportunity for private credit. It's almost a, a greenfield uh, for yep. for them, um, pending as you said the syndicated market coming back. But once it does, what do you think are the implications for the private credit industry? I I, I do think it comes back. It's certainly been a little hung up now. You've got banks with some hung deals. We all know the technology deals, for example, that are out there. At some point, that, that backlog is going to clear through, though. Uh, one of the big buyers for credits like that, of course, are, are, are CLOs, uh, broadly syndicated CLOs. And you haven't seen a lot of issuance in that space, certainly not throughout 2022, so not the, the back half of 2022. You've seen a couple of deals priced this year. You've seen some middle market CLOs even priced this year. So that market could pick back up again. If it does, maybe towards the end of the, the year, there's some serious volume there. 
I think you'll see the investment banks come back out again with uh, with a number of syndicated options as well. And 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 when they do come back in, how will that impact the deals that are you know be- yeah. you know the, the competition between right. private credit and and, and the syndicated? Yeah, uh, it it'll be tough, right? Because you do have a, a handful of players who've raised multi 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 billion dollar private yeah. credit funds. In some cases, to specifically go after this market segment, they've identified that as something that they want to go after because it has been an opportunity for the last 12, 18 months. If the syndicated market comes back, I think that competition is going to heat up more. And I think one of the knocks on that, um, that uh, it's not even upper middle market, right? It's, it's kind of the syndicated loan substitute market, if you yes. will. One of the knocks has been that you've got to compete with the syndicated market, which means more leverage, lower pricing, lack of covenants, you know, maybe a fake covenant, you know, maybe a covenant enterprise value or something. And so if the, if the syndicated market comes back, as I suspect it will, you're going to start having some real pressure on terms, pricing, structure, et cetera, within that, um, uh, within that really large tier of unit tranches. Yeah, I want to come back to sort of the importance of some of those items, for instance, covenants and whatnot. Sure. What do you think, I mean, what do you think the ceiling is <laughs> for this? <laughs> well, I would have said it was a billion, yeah. right? And then it was two, and then it was three, and then it was four, and then it was five. I, I do think at some point it does start getting unwieldy, though. Uh, I don't know how many lenders are going to end up in that deal. Like I said, there's probably two or three that are writing $500 million checks, maybe. And then you got a lot of smaller guys. So at some point, it almost mimics the syndicated market. So what you might end up seeing is almost what you used to see with the investment banks, where they would actually hold some of the issues that they then syndicated. They definitely moved much more into the the, the moving business and the storage business, kind of post-GFC, really, and really shrunk their, their trading balance sheets. So you could maybe see it's almost like a parallel not really syndicated market, but a parallel market that actually has some liquidity. You know, right. at this point, there hasn't really been liquidity if you have six or seven holders. But if you end up with 15 holders in one of these, you could end up seeing some liquidity there. I wonder, though, there's a distinct advantage that the private credit market has, maybe solidifying in this period where they can provide the certainty of terms, the mm-hmm. speed of execution, you know, the market flex, et cetera. So it might be harder when the syndicated market comes back for them for, for that market to be as competitive. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, but but is that really true, yeah. right? Because at some point you are underwriting, right? You think you're pre-syndicating and making sure you have your club lined up, but if you're one of those big private credit lenders, you know, I'm sure the syndicated banks all thought that, that they were fine and covered and not any sort of trouble right. until they had their first hung deal. Right. Um, right, right, right. So you may well end up uh, having a hung deal. And you're starting to see flex come into some of those bigger private credit deals as well. I think that speaks to the fact that there is some uncertainty oh, really? around what the market clearing terms are. So that, in, that, in fact, in, in this new deal, yeah. I mean, there's some pick interest in there too, which is certainly oh. new. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that there's there's flex creeping in because one of the features of private credit is mm-hmm. that there isn't flex. That has been the historical... Right feature of it as compared to, and it gives it a competitive advantage over the syndicated market, which typically has. And, and for listeners, when we when we talk about flex, we're talking about flex either in terms of pricing, where the pricing could adjust up or even down, depending on the market right. capacity, or terms. Terms could, certain terms could flex. Yeah, so, that, so it's moving, it could move a little bit based depending on what yes. the market appetite is. Yes, and, and I wouldn't say it's advertised as such, right? I think right. it's more a matter of, um, let's say I'm leading one of these deals, I may be buying it at a discount, right? That's maybe it's 96 mm-hmm. and I'm then selling it into the market 98. Well, if it doesn't move at 98, 
I could then sell it at 97 or something. I could end up selling it at 96. The nice thing, if I sell it at 98, of course, I make a little bit of skim income, right? Right. right but right. I could give that up, right? So there, there's inherent flex that's built in there that's Got not it. quite as obvious as price talk in the, in the traditional liquid or syndicated markets. Got it. Okay. So let me switch gears for a little bit. I sure. mean, obviously, the deals like the Codavidi deal represents a huge deployment of capital. And as we mentioned, there's uh, quite a bit of fundraising going on. Mm -hmm. uh, Oak Tree announced it's raising a $10 billion fund. Aries announced in connection with the deal I just mentioned, so they're going to go out on a, an aggressive yep. fundraising. Carlisle is out there. It seems insatiable, mm -hmm. uh, the, the appetite for private credit. What do you think is driving that, and do you think that's sustainable? Well, I, I think there's probably a couple things, right? One is uh, a lot of the players that you mentioned are publicly traded players, right? So mm -hmm. they are a little bit in the growth game. They've got EPS targets they've got to hit. They've got to show AUM growth, et cetera. So th there tends to be this fund size graduation, if you will, where they, they constantly get bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. and when um, you say AUM, you mean assets under management. Correct. Right, right. So you've got that kind of you know in the first place. Second place is, again, you've had this 18-month period where there hasn't been a lot of syndicated issuance, and so there's a market to be made there, so they're kind of jumping into that uh, that market space. I think it does skew the headline numbers a little bit, though, because the dollars are large, but the actual number of funds you know that, that are looking to target that segment you know, aren't necessarily, or isn't as large, that number isn't. And so it masks, I think, that in the core middle market, which is where we play, again, companies with 25 mm -hmm. to 75 million of EBITDA, or even the lower middle market, you know, zero to 10, 15, 25 million of EBITDA, there hasn't been as much fundraising there. Got it. Why is that? I, I think that there, there's an issue broadly within the alternative asset management space, which is the denominator effect. So if you are an allocator, you're a large public pension plan, you have decided to allocate 20% to the stock market and 20% to liquid loans, and let's say, you know, 60% to any sort of mix of alternative assets. Well, in the past, obviously 12, 18 months now, right. you've seen those those public markets trade off a bit. So now all of a sudden you find yourself over allocated to alternative assets mm -hmm. because the denominator has shrunk, sure. right? And um, alternative assets, private assets, by definition for a variety of reasons, are not as volatile as public markets are. Right. And so as a result, the next fund that comes up and it's re-upping or something, you're not going to have as much appetite for that because you can't. It'll throw your, your, your balance out of whack. And so I think that's definitely impacting the alternative asset management business as a whole. Within that, though, I'd say private credit investors, there's probably two types. There's one that was an early adopter that has been investing in private credit for a while right. and tends to re-up to their existing relationships and maybe finds a new one every once in a while. There is still, though, a cohort of, you know, I'm thinking public pension plans, private pension plans, et cetera, mm -hmm. who actually haven't allocated to private credit yet and have a new allocation, which is maybe fixed income used to be 20%. Now they're breaking that up and saying, okay, well, maybe we'll make that 12% for liquid fixed income, 4% for private credit, and 4% for infrastructure, or real estate or something. Right. They're becoming much more targeted in their allocation. And so there is still some appetite. But if you go back a few years ago, nobody had, had, had any exposure to this asset class. So there's mm -hmm. a lot more appetite without this denominator problem. Got it. Interesting. And then there's also the trend where private credit lenders are tapping into the retail investor, mm -hmm. which opens up a whole Correct. New market, is it, right? Yeah. The most obvious structure there would be the BDC structure. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a 
variety of different That's flavors. That's been around for a while. It's okay. certainly been around for a while. Uh, Look, I, I would say there's almost been like three three different stages there. If you think late 90s, early 2000s, it was almost more of a junior capital product back mm -hmm. then. Potentially, you know, a little bit more risky than it should have been for something that had a little bit of leverage and, you know, went into the GFC uh, with some potential issues. Post-GFC, you saw much more of a focus on senior products. But they, the platforms themselves were generally kind of single product platforms. We had a BDC, but not much else. Right, right. And then you've seen this kind of third stage is what I would argue where you've seen a lot of alternative asset managers like ourselves, like the KKRs of the world, the uh, Carlyles of the world, et cetera, who have now raised BDCs and are using them as part of a much broader platform right. of, uh, of credit investing in general. But yeah, that, that, is the, that is the main channel today for the retail folks to get access to this asset class. I do think there is room for that for that this sort of a product like a BDC product yep. in a retirement account, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not giving tax advice. I'm not a tax attorney, right, so right. Um, nobody go out and buy BDCs based on my recommendation. But it's a it's a very income generating type product. Typically yields in the eight to twelve percent range. So if you're living in retirement, for example, it's a great tool. It's a great asset to have in order to right. help fund your lifestyle, right? Yeah, that's that, those are the, that's the publicly traded yes. uh, BDC. Now, Correct. You, you've just raised a non-publicly traded BDC. Yes. Is that right? And so um, yes. Just describe that and what's, what's the difference? Sure. And, and why did you do that? Yeah, so if you think about a public BDC, most of them, I'm trying to think, yeah, I guess most of them started off as, as a private or a non-traded one and then IPO'd, and so then they became public. Mm -hmm. There are a few that kind of grew. Aries actually a great example. Number of acquisitions over the years sure. and, and got to be uh, very large that way. So that's certainly uh, a way to grow too. But in a steady state environment, once you've IPO'd, once you've you know, completed a merger, for example, it's actually hard to grow that fund mm. just because the way that the, the dynamics work of, of trying to grow an existing mutual fund effectively is really what it is. And so if you want to effectively refresh your capital, you, you almost have to go out and, and raise another one. In our instance, what we did was we raised another one that we decided to have non-publicly traded to provide sort of a respite from volatility because mm -hmm. we saw there's some stock price volatility you know, over time. There might be an investor class who prefers not to have the volatility. Right. The, the, the detriment, of course, is that you don't have the liquidity either. Right. You can build in some liquidity metrics like we did where you can actually redeem some of your funds every quarter or some of your shares every quarter. Right. So there is a way to actually is exit. That, is that geared towards institutional investors or retail investors or both? It's, yeah, it it, it, look, it's really both actually. Even okay. our, um, our first one uh, that we took public was a mix actually, right. uh, not quite 50-50, but it was a mix of institutional investors as well as retail investors. Again, for retail investors, it's great. It's an income-generating asset. Mm -hmm. For institutional investors, um, th there are certain types of institutional investors where there are tax issues, as you well know, yeah. um, around in, uh, directly originating loans in the United States. Right. And a BDC as, a, as an equity share, effectively, blocks a lot of those tax issues. And so it ends up being a, a tax-friendly, if you will, way for particularly offshore investors, in some case nonprofits that are onshore, to invest uh, in this asset class. Yeah, no, at, at some point I may do a, a podcast on the tax ramifications, <laughs> but I'm, I'm afraid I might lose listeners. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so. I'll stop talking about the taxes then. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, fair yeah. enough, fair yeah. enough. Um, uh, well, let's circle back to investing the capital. Yes. You know, what are you seeing today in terms of deal flow, pipeline, quality of the deals? Uh, in particular, in the market that you serve, and, and it might help orient the listeners, you know, to, to give some sense of 
the market that you focus on, and then what you're seeing in that market. Sure. So it's really, again, that core middle market companies with 25 to 75 million of EBIT. I think somewhat different than a lot of other folks, though. We are present and very active in the U.S. in Europe, where we focus really more on Northern and Western Europe mm -hmm. for various reasons. And then Australia and New Zealand, actually, we've, we've got a pretty sizable franchise there as well. So the nice thing for us is we can actually dynamically allocate across geographies based on, on, on what's interesting. Yeah. You know, for example, in 2021, U.S. market very frothy. We proportionally invested more in Europe during that year mm. than we have in, in past years. Uh, 2022 went the other way. Russia's invasion of the Ukraine made Europe a, a harder spot to invest in, right. and so we shifted a little more to the U.S. And Australia is always always pretty steady. So we have that that core middle market focus. We have uh, geographic diversification, if you will. And then you know, the other big one is probably from an industry perspective. We are fairly agnostic, actually, as it turns out, partly because we've been doing this for 25 years, and so we've just seen a lot of, over the years. Right. Partly also because we're obviously part of a much bigger organization, right? So the, the private credit group that I run is about 10 billion of assets. If you think about the Bain Capital Credit and Special Situations platform, that's about 60 billion of assets. And Got so it. there's a lot of talent within that that we can then utilize on the diligence front, for example. So we have a $35, $40 billion uh, broadly syndicated loan business. Mm -hmm. That's set up by industry teams. So we're able to tap into different members of that team. They've never heard of our companies, right? Let's be clear. Right. Our companies are way too small for them. Right. But they'll know a customer, they'll know a supplier, they'll know a competitor. They'll know the state of regulatory play. They'll know the acronyms and, and, and all the all the kinds of ins and outs of that industry. Right. So as a result, when we're going out talking to sponsors, talking to companies, we're able to ask questions 11 through 20, not 1 through 10. Got it. So we tend to be pretty open-minded from an industry perspective. Generally speaking, we do focus more on sponsored deals, mm -hmm. uh, private equity sponsor-backed companies within our senior direct lending strategy. Yeah. So that's about 80% of our assets. And then we have a junior capital strategy too, which is actually our original business. And that's maybe 60% private equity sponsor-focused with 40% being a little more bespoke. So mm -hmm. It is a pretty wide swath of, of types of deals that we can do. Okay, and within that industry, what are you seeing for deal flow and quality of the deals at yeah. this point? You know, industry specific wise, I would say uh, consumer's tough right now. The, uh, look, I think uh, uh, the base case for just about any deal right now is a recession case. Right. And uh, I think that's probably even more impacted on the consumer. So well, the recession always seems to be six months away, though. <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> well, know? it does, and it's funny because I would have said a month or two ago there's some signs that maybe we can actually avoid it completely. Yeah. And then Powell came out um, today and said, "Well, geez, I, I think interest rates might go even higher than right. than we were expecting." Right. So you're right; it, it is one of those where it's uh, it's constantly around the corner. Every time you think there's good news, it turns out to be bad news right behind it. So, having said that, being concerned, I mean, we're debt investors, right? So we want to be conservative. So we're always going to assume there's some right. doom right. and gloom right. out there, but certainly right now. So uh, consumers tough, industrial's a little bit tough right now also. So we're really focused on business services uh, to a large degree. We do continue to have a pretty active high tech space, software mm -hmm. as a service, et cetera. I think high tech in general has been painted with a, with a bad brush of late based on what's happened in some of the public right. markets. But if you actually parse it out, it's really a lot of B2C issues mm -hmm. uh, that are out there. Meta laying off 10,000 people, Google laying off 10,000 right. people, for example. Right. It's not really impacting true enterprise software uh, right. type businesses as much, right? And then the business services side, you know, if you if you make things better, cheaper, easier, faster, more efficient for a company to operate, you're always going to be in right. vogue, right? Yeah. So uh, we like those businesses a lot. 
you know, one that we have, I wouldn't say soured on, but, but one that we're not as excited about anymore, which, which people tend to view as a very defensive industry is healthcare. Interesting. So in terms of the deals you are seeing mm -hmm. and the deals you are doing, what's the leverage that you're providing on those deals compared to what you provided, say, a year ago? How, how are you yeah. thinking about that? It's interesting, right? Because as much... And, and, and if I can just, yep. you know, really, this is really for our listeners. When you're structuring a deal, one of the key things you're thinking about, in, in addition to interest coverage, I'm sure, yeah. is the ratio of debt to EBITDA. Right. As we think about yes. leverage. And in the past, say in the in the go-go years of 21, 22, it yep. was creeping up to seven, maybe even a little higher, yeah. seven times EBITDA yep. in terms of the debt. Yeah. To EBITDA well, ratio. The, you mentioned two statistics that are important, but but I, I would dive a little deeper in that. The leverage one, for example. Mm -hmm. In our minds, it really, and I'm sure you meant it this way too, really depends on the industry. Of course. Right, you've got a recurring software business. Of course. You've got really great retention. Sure, you can get six or seven times. Mm -hmm. You've got a tier three auto supplier mm -hmm. who is the way end of that supply chain right. that gets beat up by, by everybody along the way. Maybe it's two or three times, right? right? So we maybe actually it's have relative. Maybe yeah. It's so relative. I was going to say it's, it's relative we've to gone what was to being done before the leverage was yes. Up. So so we've gone more to a loan to value in terms of how we look at things, right? And so if we're talking about a um, you know first lien debt, it would love to be thirty percent. It's probably closer to forty, maybe you know all the way to fifty percent. If we're doing a junior capital piece, it's probably going to going to detach around sixty percent loan to value. That, that would be a function of EBITDA, though, right? Well, it's a function of of, of enterprise value. Right? I mean, okay. it is a function of EBITDA, sure, okay. right? But it, how much is the company being sold for, yeah. right? And that was going to go to my other point, which was you look at the public markets; they've traded off a fair amount. Sure. The private markets actually haven't traded off as much as the public markets have, and so is that a function? Are you saying that they haven't traded off? because they haven't been valued or because the actual trades, the, the actual Yeah, sales the actual haven't sales oh, haven't come down as much. So, I mean, if you think about multiples for a typical middle market company, you know, maybe they were up at like 11, 12, for you know, a variety of industries, 11, mm -hmm. 12 times. Public markets will tell you that should be off 20%, so it should be eight or nine times. They're probably still hanging in at like 10 times now. Interesting. If you think about that and then you think, okay, you know, you're somewhere in the four to six turns there from a leverage perspective. Having said that, the interest coverage ratio is the tricky one, yeah, right? Yeah, because yeah. even 12 months, I mean, I think 13 months ago, base rates were, were zero, right. right? Or single digit basis points. You know, we're talking 450, 500, and Powell said it's going to go up even higher, right? right? So that alone is, is, a, is a, a huge increase in the interest burden. But then spreads have widened out a little bit as well. So a first lien deal that maybe was 520, you know, 550 pushing 525 mm -hmm. over the risk-free rate SOFA in this instance mm -hmm. is probably 650, 700 now. Right, right. So yielding all of a sudden, a, yielding about 11, 12 percent. 12 right? right? Whereas that deal used to be six or seven percent. So right. companies can't afford as much leverage anymore, right. um, which is one of the reasons why you see you saw Codavidi come out with pick component too, mm -hmm. a pay in kind. So they're actually not paying some of their interest in, in cash because they just can't afford it because you can't put as much down on the companies and the purchase price multiples haven't fallen as much, the math becomes tough right. for a private equity sponsor right. to actually get excited about buying a company, right? right? As a result, M&A has definitely come down. Yeah. So that's really what, you know, what's driving that. That in addition to you know, it kind of being a, a recession case being the base case, right. well, like you know, private equity sponsors by definition of being an equity investor right. are always gonna be thinking you know, up and to the right, right. Uh, whereas we're always thinking flat and slightly down. Yeah, I was. I, I'm, that that raises a couple implications for the 
private equity industry, and I know you're in the on the credit side, sure. but I'm sure you think about it from the private equity mm-hmm. side, which is twofold. One is if the valuations are either stable or coming down a little bit, what's that mean for their ability to, to turn their portfolio? Yeah. If they can't turn it, then that, of course, suppresses M&A activity. Yes. And two, what's it mean for on the bid-ass spread? Yeah, two things. One is, yes, definitely, you have seen the hold period increase. You know, typically for a senior debt deal, typically I would say pre-COVID, right? We would see a hold period of two, two and a half years. Yeah. We're being refinanced, the sponsor selling a company, making some huge acquisition and, and refinancing you know, the capital structure. Right. Now it's north of three times. And the whole period of those private equity firms has definitely increased as well, to the point where we're actually starting to have conversations with sponsors about hitting maturity. Oh, right? Maturity of these deals is typically five to seven years. Yeah. You never, I mean, you know this, like yeah. we never end up getting anywhere near maturity. Right. It's right, almost right. a theoretical abstract thing <laughs> right. in the future, right? But it's happening now, um, which has not happened in the past. Now. The related issue is sponsors saying, all right, well, I got to hold on to this. I, I don't want to sell it now or I can't sell it now. Right. But let me think ahead a year or two. How am I going to make this more attractive? Guess what? I'll do a bunch of add-ons. Mm-hmm. So we are actually seeing a fair amount of deal flow. And you mentioned, you know, you asked about deal flow earlier. More of our deal flow has shifted to adding on to existing positions as companies are growing. But also, interestingly enough, we're getting a lot more calls now from sponsors maybe we haven't talked to in a while who are trying to grow but their existing lender group is tapped out mm. so they need to bring a new lender in which that's a nice opportunity it's a great opportunity yeah. it has all sorts of implications for the existing you know structure sure. and, and facility and everything else the you know deal count is actually holding stubbornly steady mm-hmm. even in the face of, of a true m a market coming down because there's this add-on activity but the dollars are just smaller so um, the add-on activity though a couple things one is the add-ons loan to value which you're willing to lend mm-hmm. is lower so it's yes. going to require them to, to put it invest more equity but the other piece is these ex- in these the existing loans mm-hmm. there are provisions as you know called mfns correct uh, and those are most favored nation uh, terms which require that if new financing comes in at a higher rate yeah depending on the terms the existing debt is ratcheted up correct as well so what impact is that having on <laughs> yeah <laughs> there are some ways around that mm-hmm. so look the first thing is if you as a private equity sponsor have owned a company for a few years theoretically it should have delevered mm-hmm. right over time because you should be hitting your plan and leverage should be coming down right so to, to answer the first part of your question there there should be room to relever Got it. And maybe not even without putting equity in. So you may actually get away with a with a debt funded acquisition, yeah. right? Be, be Depending on much Before in the go go days, you know, in the, uh, 20, 21, 22, yeah. they, there was not the relevering. It yes. was just the values were going Correct. up. And so they just layered yep. on more. That was debt. even easier, right? That yeah. was, yes. Yeah. And, th- and now we're in a new world. And right. What you're saying is they're going to have to show some delevering in order to Correct. tap into those baskets. Or, they, they, you know, they have to put some equity in as well, yes. right? And then on your. On your MFN question around pricing, there are some creative ways around that, and the one we tend to use most is is original issue discount or OID. If the deal currently is a live or so for five seventy five deal, but mm-hmm. today's market would tell you it should be six fifty, yeah. you have to get the economics somehow, right? There's some limits to the MFN structure, um, so maybe you can increase it by twenty five basis points or fifty basis points without triggering that. But then there's still some uh, additional economics that you need to make up. So mm-hmm. one of the ways you can do that is to say, well. The maturity is three years away, so if we amortize some sort of return level that we need to recoup over three years, 
if we buy this debt at 96 or we buy it at 95 or 94, mm -hmm. we can make up some of those economics. Got it. So that has tended to be how we've gotten around it. From a cover price perspective, the price hasn't changed much, the pricing hasn't changed much or, or not at all, but we're still making sure we're finding ways to get compensated for the higher risk levels that we um, see out there. Got today. it, got it, interesting. So one of the things you mentioned earlier on was that in your deals as compared to most of the upper market syndication style deals, mm -hmm. you have financial maintenance covenants. Right. And can you explain two things? One is, what are they? Mm -hmm. And two, why you think they're so important? Well, let me start with the second one. You know, having been in this business now for, for 25 years, there's a lot of cycles we lived through. Everyone you know, remembers COVID, even though it was actually ultimately fairly short-lived, right? It was like a six-month crazy period, and then uh, we kind of grew out of it. The GFC, the global financial crisis, obviously a longer one, although the number of people, as you know, that are in our business that right. remember that and lived through it and had to yeah. deal with it is dwindling. But, you know, there was the dot-com bubble of 2000, 2001. There mm -hmm. was there was a media bubble in the mid-2000s. There's actually been a few media bubbles. Mm -hmm. There was the oil and gas issue in 2015. So there's been a whole bunch of different cycles, however big and small, over the past 25 years. And there's been one thing that's been consistent as we've looked at the market. It's been having financial covenants is extremely important. You know, they are goalposts for us in terms of ensuring that performance of these companies is within some bounds of what expectations are, right. because that's what we're lending into. Mm -hmm. You don't see them a lot in the syndicated market anymore, but the theory there is if you don't like performance, you can trade out of the, the security. Right. Again, these loans are not liquid. You know, we've talked about some of the big unit tranches, maybe some liquidity gets introduced, but the ones we're in, we're typically one of one, two, or three lenders. Right. Um, in fact, in three quarters of our deals, we are the majority lender, meaning at least 50% uh, of the tranche. You know, for us, having that goalpost or that trigger point that says, all right, performance is actually 30% off of plan, mm -hmm. let's have a conversation. Doesn't mean we want to take control of the company from the owner, from the sponsor, whatever the case may be, but is it a temporary blip? Did you make an acquisition or spend a lot of money on something that kind of flew through your, your income statement and you're going to get some benefit from it later? Okay, you know what, we'll let that slide. No big deal, 25 basis point amendment fee. Mm -hmm. Has there been a longer term trend of your sales just drying up or some cost bar issue going out of control? Well, you guys got to put some more money in or we have to be compensated more or both. Right. And so having that trigger it really compensates us for the lack of liquidity in, in, these, uh, in these names. And the... Oh, sorry, and I should add, Peter, that I think that the latest stats, 91% of our senior direct lending deals actually have covenants in them, right. so you're right. We absolutely insist on them. Yeah, and, the and that's as compared to, I think the number is almost flipped. Yes, flipped for the syndicated, the syndicated market. 100%. And the covenant, I think, is typically a leverage governor. Yes. Is that right? There used to be a whole package of yes. maximum capex, fixed charge, leverage. Well, now you're going back uh, way back. Yeah, <laughs> back when you, when you and I started this business. <laughs> yeah. So uh, those are the days, I tell yes. you what. So now it's generally just leverage if you only have one, but we're seeing some bespoke ones in like a SaaS business, for example, you might see renewal rates mm -hmm. um, that, that need to stay uh, at a certain level to ensure that, you know, especially if the EBITDA is very low or even negative, you want to make sure that the top line is actually still stable so you can catch that sooner. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, too, because, I mean, if you do the math, yeah, it's nice to have more covenants for sure. But you, you can work the math, and we used to do this, right? We used to have these tables of, well, it's at these covenants here, and that covenant there, and that covenant, and try to have one trigger before the other, but everyone's kind of in on the joke, and they all end up triggering at the same right, time. Right, right. So whether you have three or one, 
you can generally make sure yeah. that, that, that you're somewhat protected. We could do several podcasts on financial maintenance covenants yes. in terms of how they are calculated and mm -hmm. the terms, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I think we'll leave it there that they're important, <laughs> however yes. they're drafted. Yes. What other terms might be moving more in favor of the lender that you're seeing? Uh, yeah. Now, because there was this period, I'd say the last 10 years, where the terms have been moving in favor of the sponsor borrower. Yeah. But there has been some shift back in favor of the lenders. I'm curious as to what you're seeing. Yeah. In that regard. Well, I mean, there, there's a few that I can think of. You know, one is uh, restricted payments baskets, right? So to what extent can the company pay the sponsor management fees or give tax distributions if it's an LLC structure or do something where value is leaking out of the company, not to the benefit of the debt holders, mm -hmm. right? So I think those baskets have been tightened. I think the other one that we've been pushing a fair amount on is to what extent you can relever the business as it's supposed to delever, as we talked about. Right. And it used to be that you could lever right back up to closing leverage and basically stay fully levered the entire time. Now maybe it's half a turn less than that or a full turn less than that. So there are a bunch of ways that you can tweak things mm -hmm. uh, and tighten up language. And to your point, you know, the EBITDA definition for some of these is not a gap-defined term, right? Right. The EBITDA definition in some of these credit agreements is like three pages long. At least. So you can absolutely tighten that up. Yeah. Um, I think the most egregious EBITDA addback we ever saw was we can add back any cost savings the CFO thinks can reasonably be achieved within the next 36 months. Yes. And that was a rolling thing. So every quarter, you know, it's like, oh, I, I think there's a whole bunch of savings <laughs> right. we can get, you know, in months 33 to 36 from now, which is crazy. And why that's important is because the calculation of leverage isn't just deter determining the financial covenant. It is impacting the ability of the company to incur additional debt, the ability mm -hmm. to make, as you said, restricted payments, dividends, yep. and the like. So it flows throughout the document. Yeah. And so the ability to increase that Manipulate that? I didn't okay. increase. My, my word's not <laughs> yours. Your word's okay, not fine. mine. Yep. Uh, is very significant. Yes, and, and there's even so, some deals, of course, where the interest rate itself, the spread itself, is dictated yes. based on the leverage yes. number, yes. right? Based so on a pricing, a pricing curve. Exactly. Right. So if you're massaging that number, let's say massaging instead of manipulating, then that can certainly come through there as well. Yeah, we talked a, little, uh, a bunch about deployment and terms. But as you mentioned, Chairman Powell just testified today that the rate at which increases, mm -hmm. uh, interest rate increases have to occur, may have to be accelerated. And really looking to control inflation, which of course may have a recessionary knock-on effect. Sure. Uh, that's what everyone expects. I guess from my perspective is, I'm curious you know, how that impacts your portfolio management, your thinking about how your portfolio companies are going to be yeah. able to uh, deal with the continuing increases of interest, additional debt burden, cash flow burden on them. So I'm just generally curious as to yeah. you were well, thinking about that. Look, certainly w with this latest announcement, I think we're gonna have to go back and do some more math, but mm. what we did do maybe the end of the third quarter last year, as rates were continually increasing and, and the the forecast was for more. We just took our entire portfolio of 250 some odd borrowers and said, okay, if base rates so far, and at the time, I wanna say it was probably around 350, 400 basis points, but yeah. talk was it was gonna maybe peak at five mm -hmm. uh, here in the first quarter sometime. If so far it went to 500 basis points today, and again, this is back in September, and it stayed there for eight quarters, what happens to our portfolio? And I think that's the kind of scenario modeling you should be doing. Yeah, you're stress testing. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And you should be doing it on a regular basis mm -hmm. to try to 
weed out some of those potential problem children ahead of time. Because mm -hmm. the, the, the worst thing you can do is get a call from the, you know, the sponsor saying, hey, this company's running out of money next week, can you put some money in? Right. So you want to make sure you are way ahead of that. Mm -hmm. And I think we were pleasantly surprised that our companies actually held up pretty well. There were, you know, certainly a few, probably more than a handful, but you know, maybe up to a dozen or so out of that 250, where there was definitely going to be a shortfall, but it was probably going to be four, five, six quarters out. Mm -hmm. So I think the question in our minds now, based on, on the latest announcement here, is: is that a short-term issue? Are you going to look to keep them elevated for a while? You know, w what's going to happen there? So it's certainly something that we're going to reevaluate here internally against all, you know, all new news at this point. But harken back a little bit to COVID, where companies were shut down for three months, six months, right. and had zero cash flow, right. and leverage covenants levels, for example, were completely out of whack. Right. But all we really cared about was liquidity. Right. So we had a number of amendments we went through then, and it was a matter of, all right, how are we going to preserve liquidity right. such that the company can fight to live another day, basically, right? It could be a multi, I mean, it depends on the situation, right? Typically, sponsor has to has to chip in a little bit, but yep. could we pick some of our interests, for example? Sure, I mean, that is a tool that is available to us. But we view picking as reinvesting in the company. Right. So we have to want to do that. So, I mean, I think there are ways to deal with it. I think the question is going to be how high and how long, ultimately. The way I think about COVID is it was like a heart attack. It happened, yes. it happened quickly. Mm -hmm. The recovery was, was pretty quick for a whole host yep. of reasons. Yep. That's not this. Yeah, I may get in trouble for saying this, but um, I was pleasantly surprised at how private equity sponsors generally performed during COVID. Yeah. And, and the reason I say that is if you think back to, again, the, the GFC, it was the proverbial frog you know, boiling in a pot of water, mm -hmm. right? You didn't notice anything until all of a sudden you were really in 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 deep uh, in a deep situation right. at the deep end of the pool there. So with COVID, it was so instant that everyone really jumped to it and had a playbook ready of, okay, let's delay some capex, let's go through a riff if we need to. You know, where else can we save on some liquidity? Because liquidity is king in situations like that, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a concern initially that that you know, a lot of other lenders shared with us as well that every company is going to be a problem, right. and sponsors are going to pick and choose which ones they're going to support. And geez, I really hope I'm in the quote unquote right one. Right. But they actually blocked and tackled very well. They worked really well with the management teams and, and got that done. Partly because it was that some of that shock therapy, right? Mm -hmm. um, you needed the defibrillator. It wasn't like a slow burn from that standpoint. So. I'm hopeful mm. that folks have that playbook ready. Problem, I, they may have exhausted a lot of those things. Mm. And we're starting to see, and I'm sure you're starting to see this on the legal front too, we're starting to see requests for amendments creep up. It's one of those classic things where, where back second, third quarter of 2020, it was 25% of the portfolio was like, hey, we may need something, right. and it ended up being less than that. But now it's, you know, one or two companies here, and all of a sudden it's three or four, and you're like, okay, there's a little trickle becoming a, a bit of a stream here, and right now there, there's a lot of um, you know a lot of bluster, a lot of hey we private equity sponsor the owner whoever it is we'll take care of this no problem. Right. I don't know how much that is bluster versus oh Jesus the beginning of the uh, right. of the of the flood, right. um, and or how much do we have left in the tank to actually cut costs or cut capex right. or, or do whatever. I think from a company's perspective, I found the middle market to be very resilient mm -hmm. uh, during this period. Yes. But it must be incredibly stressful right now to be a CEO or CFO yes. of one of these middle market companies as you keep marching down. You're able to pass on some price increases. You're able to absorb some of the uh, labor issues, labor or issues else, yeah. and other costs and cost of capital, mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. But boy, the hits keep, keep coming, yep. don't they? Yeah. Yes, they do. So. Um, 
So uh, one of the questions, we were talking about this in preparation for this, and I was curious because I hadn't really seen many statistics on this, but when those deals do go into default, mm -hmm. what recoveries look like for these senior secure yeah. loans? And how does that compare to, let's say, the syndicate, syndicate market? market? Yeah, well, um, I think that's another good reason to have covenants, quite frankly, right, is because you can catch problems earlier, right? The, the reason you end up going into default in some of these syndicated deals is because there's a payment default. So things are pretty bad before you stop paying your bills. Right. If you have a covenant issue in a middle market deal, a traditional covenant, you can catch things earlier. I'm not faulting them for this, but you know, the natural reaction if a company is declining in performance for an owner, be it private equity sponsor or otherwise, is gonna be to swing for the fences. Mm -hmm. That might not be the right answer from the perspective of a lender, sure. of course, right? Because you can strike out a lot if you're coming out of your shoes swinging. Mm -hmm. So, almost by definition, the recovery rate's gonna be lower for syndicated deals because more value has eroded effectively before anyone else can step in. So, I don't know about market statistics. I wanna say it's around 60 or so for first lien deals, uh, and you may know this better than I do, but I think it's somewhere in that kind of range. We're in the 80s, and so we've actually done pretty well there. So, if you look at our 25-year history on the senior side, our annual loss rate, so that's effectively your default rate multiplied by uh, your recovery rate is about three basis points and then annualized. It's about three uh, basis points a year. On the junior side, it's under 30 basis points a year. Obviously, you're taking more risk there. Right, you kind of expect right, that. Right, right. So when you think in the context of, again, today, senior deals are 12% you know, yields, but historically, they're kind of more in the 8 to 10% yield. If you lose three basis points to, to credit, that's actually pretty good. Yes. From a, from a junior capital perspective, we're generally in the you know, 12 to 14% range, you're probably willing to give up 30 basis points in order to get that kind of return. Got it, interesting. So we've talked about a number of trends that are going on, even as they've been coming out in the news as we're speaking. I'm curious, are there any other major trends uh, that you, know, you observe that's going on in the private credit industry? Well, look, I mean, I, I certainly think it's become more professionalized, more established. Again, one of the ways you can see that is LPs now have actual allocations to private credit. What happened five, 10 years ago was, well, geez, I don't know where to put this this, this product. It's a liquid, yeah. so I have to put it in my private equity bucket, but it's not obviously returning what a private equity deal is, right? right. So it's not competing very well with the private equity. And I can't put it in my fixed income bucket because it's not liquid, right? Right. But now everyone's actually got, or almost everyone at this point, has an allocation to, yes. to private credit. So I'll tell you a funny story. Yeah. When, when we, first joint started this private credit group at Proskauer, we went to our fund formation colleagues and said, hey, you might want to introduce our private credit clients to LPs because yeah. they're raising capital. Right. And they're like, private credit? What is that? <laughs> there was no they didn't even know how to, where it yes. would fit in an allocation yeah. within the pension funds. Right, right. You know? It's been an uphill battle. Yeah. And, and to all the new private credit providers out there, you're welcome for yes, exactly. being on the uh, tip of the spear for that one. But now, I mean, the tough thing, too, private credit just means different things. And middle market means different things to different yes. people. So you almost have to explain yourself now because private credit could include infrastructure, include, include real estate. It's not just you know, right. corporate debt, you know, bilateral deals anymore. Right, right. This has been great. Thank you. Just have two more questions. When you look back five years from now, what developments would surprise most people in the private credit industry? Not things that you can see, but yep. you know, things that you could imagine would could, could occur that would surprise folks. I think the degree to which the retail market participates. I mean, mm -hmm. we've talked about BDCs and there is some retail participation, but I think that's dwarfed by these institutional funds of you know, mm -hmm. five, 10, $15 billion, right? 
a lot of the BDCs from a market cap perspective are around a billion dollars. There's a couple exceptions, obviously, right. right? But the scale is nowhere near, I think, what it can grow to over time. Right. They sound small now. They, they do, <laughs> right? <laughs> Seriously. So, so I think we have a lot of growth ahead of us uh -huh. there, right? So I, I think that's kind of one point. I, I think the other one that's interesting is, is some of these bigger private credit funds that are, again, trying to displace the, the, the syndicated market may have nowhere to go or may have less opportunity because, A, there aren't that many big companies like that, right, for, for the amount of capital that's been raised, mm. and, and B, I do think the syndicated market comes back at some point. Mm. My question mark in all this is, is what happens to the high-yield market? Oh, interesting. Does that get displaced? Mm. So is there all this capital that's looking for a private deal and you end up with a three-handle billion dollar, you know, subordinated second lien, high, which is effectively high, I mean, some sort of junior mm. strategy, right? Because you've definitely seen the senior market being competitive at the private credit level with the syndicated market, but you haven't seen the junior market play there yet. So private high yield offerings, you know, is that going to drive away the public high yield bond market? I don't know, but that's something I, I could see happening in five years with this capital and with this development. Great. Thanks for sharing your insight on the private credit market. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Thank you. See you, sir.